Three, two, one. Welcome to Learn Videography, a podcast dedicated to mastering the art and business of becoming a full-time videographer. Presented by Industry Jump. Hosted by director Kyle Loftus and producer JJ England. Let's go. What's up, fam? Welcome back to Learn Videography, your podcast to learn everything you need to know about becoming a full-time videographer. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Loftus, and our special guest for today, Ryan Huffman, a producer and the owner of Huffman Creative, a premier production company in Los Angeles. How are we doing, gentlemen? Fantastic. Thanks for having me today. (laughs) Of course. Super stoked to be having you on the pod today, Ryan. Uh, For our listeners out there, this week we're focused on booking crew, actors, vendors, and everything else you need for your productions throughout this episode. We'll talk about how Ryan got started as a producer how he's landed major music videos for artists like 2 Chains, Ariana Grande, Nicki Minaj, and overall the tips that have helped him succeed as a producer. Yeah, so let's get right into it. Ryan, start us off. Um, let's start by learning you know, how you got started as a producer and, and filmmaker. What is your origin story? Yeah, so I mean, I, I kind of have a rare story in the sense that I, I started making um, you know, short films and whatnot with my brother when I was super young. Um, ended up going to Chapman University in Orange County, uh, where I studied film producing um, and just production set management. So actually, after graduating college, I worked at Revolt TV, which is P. Diddy's music network. Um, I was a producer there on their television show called Revolt Live. Um, it was like a live music news show. So it was my responsibility to uh, write and produce two episodes a week. Um, from there, I was able to connect with an executive producer that was starting a new production company. Um, and he had some projects that were looking for some support. So I made the leap and left Revolt and started producing a couple of music videos and commercials underneath him. Um, from there, kind of grew my network, started working for other production companies and other artists and clients and brands. And over the course of three years, started my own production company, Huffman Creative. And I've been focusing on that the last year and a half, two years, uh, producing short form content, primarily music videos, commercials, documentaries, and photo shoots. But that's kind of my um my my climb in a nutshell. <laughs> that's incredible, oh, wow. and that's a pretty quick climb. I gotta ask, what made you like want to be a filmmaker? Like, what was that moment? It's like, yo, I gotta go to film school. Yeah, you know, you know, I growing up, I was involved in student government, um, and I always loved you know planning things and events and, and trips for friends and family, and you know, I, I always loved filmmaking growing up. And then to be honest, I didn't even really know what producing meant or even what in what went into producing um, when I was in high school. And, and I had a, you know, a close family friend that said, Hey, have you ever considered producing? It's, it's kind of what you do already, but also involving film. And I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, so that was kind of my like first eye opening of what, what producing even entails. And from there just, you know, started pursuing it and all the way to where I am now. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. That's, so cool. That's incredible. And so, you know, when you first started in, in your early days in your career, when you're making these short films, did you quickly find out that like your passion and your role was producing or like how did how did that transpire that like you I guess you knew producing? Was it just that specific moment where someone told you? Yeah, I think a little bit. I mean, I will say I'm still a very uh, creative person in the sense that I'm very hands-on with the directors and and creative and story and people that I work with. Um, So I'm still very passionate about that side of filmmaking. But yeah, I think 
I think more than anything, it was just kind of like a happy medium to be both creative and a leader um, with crew and other people that I work with. And that's something that I've always gravitated towards and enjoyed. And that's where I kind of found it as a perfect fit. And so when you were yeah. trying to develop content and I guess, you know, build a portfolio and stuff, what, what kind of steps did you take in order to do that? Especially when you're trying to you know, do it from a producer standpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that I always tell young filmmakers and it's, it's obviously easier said than done. Um, but if I can look back and think on a couple of examples of how I was able to find success, one of them was, you know, it's a little bit of the chicken for the egg scenario where if you want a client or someone to offer you money or to make, to make money on some creative work that you're doing, they kind of will ask you, well, can I see some of your work and whatnot? And if you don't have anything to show, then it's sometimes harder to get the job. So right, I always right. encourage people, you know, when you start off, you know, you're not going to be given a lot of money. You're not going to be given a lot of resources and, and just make something, you know, it doesn't, even if you're shooting something on your phone, you know, it, it will, you'll learn skills, you'll learn how to, how to shoot, you'll learn how to edit um, and allow you to your own expertise to grow over time. And next thing you know, you'll have a, a small body of work that you can show other people and, then that will eventually turn into paid work um, and you'll continue to be able to grow from there. Uh, another, another thing that I think is really important um, that I contribute a lot of my success to, and yes, while it's a little bit easier said than done, I always tell people to pursue opportunity over money in the beginning. And yes, I know that you have to make some money to afford rent and to eat and whatnot, but I look back on some of my earlier opportunities and I told the story a few minutes ago of how I met that executive producer that allowed me to produce a job after Revolt TV. Now, I had met that guy because during college, I had the opportunity to work on a film set as a second AD. It was unpaid. I drove up from San Diego to San, to, uh, San, San Clemente to work on this job and impress this director. Next thing I know, this guy hires me on another job. A few weeks later, this time it was paid. Um, and him and I kept in touch and remained good friends for a couple of years after that happened until I was looking for a new position after Revolt. And that same director is the one that introduced me to that executive producer that gave me that opportunity to start producing at the gate. So when you think of it that way, I contribute that the idea that I went one day knowing it could lead to a relationship and, um, you know, experience beyond getting paid. I, I think that looking back on it, that is a massive contribution to how I was able to segue from my previous job to, um, to, to freelance producing. And I know a lot of other, um, you know, young entrepreneurs and creatives who have done similar things, you know, um, just from just from always pursuing the the knowledge and the experience over the money at first, um, that stuff will come later, and I think it will allow you to knock down a lot of doors a little bit more quickly. Yeah, I can Definitely. totally re relate to that. I've had a very similar experience where just taking on free work in the beginning has just led to years and years of relationships, successful relationships with those people. And and Kyle mm -hmm. and I have talked about that a lot on the show. We've also preached uh, spec work. You know, have you done any kind of spec projects yourself? Yes, I have. Um, I mean, we've done, um, through my own company, we've done a couple, we did a spec car commercial. Uh, we've also done um, a spec toy commercial as well, but that was a great avenue as well for, you know, someone to get into car commercials and, some other types of creative that they don't typically um, get the opportunity to do. I, I'm a huge advocate of spec for sure. <laughs>
Yeah. Is there like one project that, that you look back on as a producer and say, that wasn't like the biggest project or anything, but that turned out to be one of my favorite projects and it was really successful. Is is there one that you have that you can tell us a little bit about? Yeah. Hold on. Let me think on that for a second. <clears throat> There's so many videos that you've done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't even have to be like the biggest name or anything, just like a video that came together that was just really successful uh, in its own right. Yeah. I mean, I think one that, that kind of pops into my head, this was a uh, a, a three-day shoot in Tokyo, Japan for an artist named Galantis. They um, are an electric duo, but that was a, a job that kind of came to us and, and the the management and the label kind of said, hey, you know, we, we have this video we want to shoot um, with the artist kind of running through busy streets and whatnot. Can we film that here in LA? And I went on their, their tour schedule and they were going to be in Tokyo, Japan the week or two before. And I said to them, hey, instead of just filming in Los Angeles through where, like, where are you going to film people running through a crowd and like the promenade or like a Hollywood Boulevard, like that's overdone and terrible and boring. Can we just do this in Tokyo? And they said, yeah, sure. So we <laughs> so had a, cool. it was a 50 K budget, um, which wasn't huge, but it was just a team of four of us, a, a DP, a first AC, a producer and a director uh, that traveled to Tokyo and film with them for three days. Um, and it was, it was a simple concept, but to run around Japan for three days and, and, uh, see that idea come to life was, was really special. Um, especially since it was one of those things where it was just a suggestion of, Hey, I know this sounds a little crazy to go to Japan, but what do you think? And they all loved it. So, uh, it was, it was a fun one to look back on. It's time for our ad break and our sponsor of the day for today's episode. Thank you, Artlist. If y'all haven't heard of them, it's time you do. I am talking about music licensing made easy. They help you with one single and simple plan starting at $199 for a full year of licensed music, no additional costs, no hidden fees, unbelievable quality. And I'm talking unlimited license for commercial TV, podcasts, YouTube, the list goes on. Sign up today using the link in our bio at Learn Videography or in our show notes and you get two months free added onto your plan. Now get creating. As a producer, you know, we need to just solve problems all the time. Can you talk about how you go about solving problems like on your sets, you know, like the communication, professionalism, like, you know, if an artist or a client comes to you like the day before a shoot and says, hey, I got something crazy. How do you deal with that as a company owner and as a respectable producer? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different answers for that. I mean, one thing that I've found is managing expectations with honesty. Uh, don't, especially if you're communicating with a client, don't tell them that something can be done that you know that you can, or that if it, if, if there's even a slight variable that maybe it couldn't just being transparent in that sense yeah. and setting yourself up for success, because the last thing you want to do is over promise something that, you know, you can't deliver on. Um, and at the same time, if there's risks involved, like you want to tell the client or the relationship or crew member that, hey, yes, we can do X, but by the way, you should be aware of Y. 
and, you know, continue on from there. So that kind of protects you a little bit more um, and also just keeps everyone on the same page. So there's less surprises. I always say that, you know, people don't like surprises, especially ones they don't know about. So if you know it's going to surprise someone off the bat, you're better off telling them um, and not just crossing your fingers and hoping it doesn't happen. Because if it if it snowballs into something else and it's a bigger issue. Um, something else just to touch on in terms of communicating with crew um, is always listen to the needs of other people that, that are, that, you know, you are employing as a director, as a creative producer, you know, you are the leader on set and people watch how you interact with others and how you speak and not only condone yourself, but also condone the other crew members on your set. So I always tell people to be, be aware that you're a leader um, obviously things can happen where you might get a little anxious and a little nervous, but you'll, when you learn how to be able to stop and analyze a situation and make a smart choice that can lead your team in a positive direction, that's where, you know, you can grow immensely and people will learn and rely and trust on you. And I think that that is a huge uh, component of being a successful filmmaker. Yeah. Absolutely. To follow up with that, with a successful example, I believe you were the LA producer for that pop and clout video where the actor never showed up. Right? Oh, I, you know, I was not on that one, but I am very, very, very familiar with that project and can definitely speak to it. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk through it a little bit? Yeah. So um, that was a video that this uh, good friends of mine uh, who run a company called Pop and Clout out of Brooklyn, uh, they had a job with Young Thug. Um, from what I have been told, it was a horrific mess, not because of the production company, but because the artist never showed up. And, and the issue that made it even wow. more difficult, I want to paint a picture, is that, you know, you have, let's say you have 12 hours in a day, you had the artist for eight hours. So you get, they were getting told all day, oh, the artist is 30 minutes away. The artist is five minutes away. The artist is 10 minutes away. And when that happens, you also have to make sure that they're set and their scene is set up. So not only are you juggling, were they juggling a bunch of different shoot times and windows, it was that when they were getting these different messages, they would then have to rechange their setups or modify things. And then they were just sitting there waiting for him to show up and then he wouldn't show up and then they just move on to the next setup. So rinse and repeat that all day to the point where he actually did finally show up. I think like nine hours late or 10 hours late. But the second he pulled on the driveway, he had his like Instagram hack or something like that. And then just sped off and never came on the set. What, <laughs> so I, and I, what was the yeah. budget again? It was, I think, I think it was like, I think it was around like 130, 140. Yeah. Like 140 um, like a, grand. Yeah. Like Kyle. a decent, a decent budget. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that tiny. I think it was decent sized. Um, and, and I applaud Ryan uh, Stack, the director of that video. You know, I mean, he came up with such a fantastic idea. And, and, and Ryan obviously is a very funny, uh, creative guy. And he had sent that over originally as kind of like a, a joke, like this is what we can do for the video. And they actually liked it and said, like, this is great, which is why the video is so iconic. It's just a unique idea that was executed so so well um yeah yeah, just to give us our listeners yeah Yeah. just to give our listeners a little bit more context Mm -hmm. since the the artist never showed up the director still edited together like clips that they recorded during the day while they're waiting for the artist showing up and then they essentially they had the performance scene set up so they instead of just showing the artist 
performing, they would put in text of like, this was going to be this scene, but he never showed up. So we didn't shoot this scene. And he did that for the whole music video and ended up putting together a music video for this artist that was never in the video. And the video itself went on to get like, I think a hundred million views or like millions and millions of views. Yeah. (laughs) It was totally viral. And I think that's just a great example of like, things are going to go wrong, you know, and how can you react, you know, and how can you make the best of it in each situation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they definitely did it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I think filmmaking pretty much is, you know, one could say the definition is creative problem solving. (laughs) Um, Ryan, could you, could you speak about, the importance of, you know, being an adaptable and a patient leader, um, you know, when, when working with crew and communicating. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I, I was kind of alluding to this a little bit earlier when I talk about being honest, um, patience is, I know it sounds like a broken record player, patience is a virtue, but in the sense that you're always are going to be working with different people of different skill levels um, of different ages, you know, you might be talking with someone that has no idea what they're doing and someone who's done it a hundred times. And by really focusing and practicing on patience, um, it will allow you to be yourself to be more level-headed and more understanding of, of the person that you're interacting with. And, you know, I always tell people that work for me, like, look, I would rather you ask me a question of something that you don't know. Cause I at one point didn't know that either. And I would rather you ask than you just assume and guesstimate and then make a mistake. You know, because especially when you're on a project and, and time is of the essence and same with money, you want to make sure that you're all working together as a team. And if that means, you know, being patient and honest with someone else, that's, I think, the best medicine for making something great. Right. Yeah. Agreed. When you get a project greenlit and it's like, all right, great. I have a week to hire 10, 20 crew members. What does that process look like for you? Can you actually like walk us through the steps of how you go about securing those crew members and you know, the communication, the paper trail to like prepare you for that next shooting day? Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I always start off by hiring. I think, I think typically my first hire will is the director of photography um, or a stylist if styling is involved in the video. Uh, the reason why the DP is one of my first hires is because he's also the one that's going to help me bring on maybe my camera assistance, maybe my gaffer, maybe my key grip. Um, and it's kind of, you know, they are also very, uh, important in helping decide for a lot of directors, what locations they're filming in, um, what the frame is going to look like, you know, even little things from set dressing. So some directors, um, are very good at understanding exactly what they want. Um, and some of them just not, nothing, nothing against this way, but some of them just, they, they really rely on their DP to give them. Um, that confidence and that extra decision-making factor. So I always found that DPs are kind of the, one of the first people that I bring on and they typically bring along the other people underneath them. Now, something else too is that I wish I encourage everyone to do uh, is that I have, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, I have a contact sheet built into a Google Drive uh, system for every single job I've ever produced. I could take you back to the first job I ever did uh, like five years ago, there was a 20K music video. So as you kind of think back and have this contact database of all your other projects, it, it allows you to quickly go back and find people of a certain skill level or, you know, for example, as you your projects grow. And, you know, I, I think back on a job where I needed someone that could blow up a building, like a storefront and make it look realistic. So I've only done that once, but, you know, when I needed it again recently, 
I was able to find that contact information and the cost of that in 30 seconds, just because of how I had it organized on Dropbox and Google Drive. So I encourage you as you build your team and your network to still keep those crew members at the ready because it will allow you to quickly book crew, um, especially if you don't have a lot of time to do so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a great resource. When you reach out to cinematographers, when you reach out to, you know, key creatives and whatnot, like what is your communication to them? Is it email, calling? What information do you tell them? Do you just, do you lock them in immediately? Do you put them on hold? What does that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I typically, you know, when a project comes up, I, I will, if I know them personally, um, or I've worked with them before, I will text them. Um, if they have an agent or um, someone that's managing them, I will send them an email and kind of with the creative and the dates and the information that they need to coordinate that person's schedule. Um, so yeah, I mean, even, even before a project is maybe officially awarded or moving forward, I do try to get the D, the DP's availability and put them on hold. Because as I said, uh, I think that the DP is one of the most important positions on any project. And especially with certain directors, some of them, you know, they have these really great relationships with these directors and you want to make sure that you can get them for the project. So um, putting them on hold, sending them to the creative. And then from there, uh, getting them on the phone with the director uh, to kind of walk through their vision, make sure that our budgets and approaches are kind of aligned with how to effectively execute something. Um, and then from there, hopefully when the project goes, we book them officially and, and start running. That makes sense. Right. For someone like a, your DP, right? They, they're hiring probably their gaffer, their key grab, maybe the first AC. Do you supervise those hires or do they just literally fill the departments and then send you over a contact list of, hey, here's all my guys? Uh, is that the way it goes? Or do you reach out to every single one individually and, and follow up and, and paper that as well? Yeah, so it, it's it's a little bit of a mix of both. I will say that my like what I typically do is I will give a DP and an email. I send them and say, hey, here's your camera budget. Here's your grip and lighting budget. Here's what I had for your crew and what their rates were. Then they kind of go out, ask some of their friends, and then send me back their contact info. Sometimes if they aren't able to help or if they're if the rates are too low or if they're spread too thin, um, that's when I go in and I, I mentioned like I dive into my Google Drive where I can find people that I enjoyed working with uh, very quickly. Um, but yes, I, I definitely, once I bring someone on, um, especially this year with COVID and stuff, we have a bunch of policies and things that we do that we email people ahead of time to lock them in. Also get them to confirm their rate as well, because I've been in situations where, you know, a DP accidentally maybe said the rate was X when in reality it was $100 lower. And yeah. if you didn't communicate that ahead of time, you're sitting there at rap, walking off set, and someone says, what do you mean my rate's not this? I thought it was this. And then you're in this difficult yeah. situation because you yeah. never confirmed it. Uh, so they, uh, they can kind of say that they were told something, and if you didn't do it, then you're kind of stuck. When if, if you're ahead of it in the beginning, you can confirm that everyone's on the same page. And I also even go beyond rate and let people know, you know, like, uh, for example, a crew member doesn't like to find out the night before they're shooting that they're on a night shoot. Like, you, know, you need right. to tell them that ahead of time. <laughs> so I tell crew other variables, like, yes, the rate is, let's say, $400. But by the way, we're shooting overnight in the desert. Or by the way, we're in Palm Springs spending the night. Like, you need to let these people know what they're signing up for uh, before it, it's way too late in the game. And I remember that's something I learned in the beginning of producing where I didn't tell people that it was an overnight and like five or six crew members hit me up and they said, Hey, I have a call time the next day at 8am. 
like I can't do this job. So yeah. you want to find that information out ahead of time or even anything from like maybe someone is, is uncomfortable like around animals or maybe you're shooting out of a boat and they don't like water. Like it's always – you always want to communicate that to your crew ahead of time so there's no surprises last minute, especially when they yeah. show up to set. You shouldn't have things like that when they show up to set not knowing what's going <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah. I assume you do something similar for your actors as well, right? Can you talk through that communication process with your cast? Yes. Yeah, so, so very similar with, with talent. Um, it, and, I, and I also, again, found this out the hard way is you need to absolutely tell talent. And if they're represented by any management teams or casting directors or anyone, everything that they're going to be doing. Um, it, that involves, you know, if they're talent and they're supposed to be getting wet, um, they're dancers and they're being asked to do some movement on the floor. Like, uh, you're being asked to cut your hair. You're being asked to wear this type of material, or maybe you're involved or in a situation. A yeah, exactly. Kiss someone, or I was going to say like a sexual or misleading kind of environment. Like those things, like I said, like you don't want to tell that to your lead actor when they show up on set or anyone of your actors for that reason. You want to be able to communicate it. And look, there's going to be some things that people are not able to do or not comfortable with, and that's fine. But you'd rather find that out beforehand and not when they're there. Um, I've also run into issues where, you know, we didn't mention that the talent was going to get wet in the scene. So a lot of the talent then told their agents that we did that. And I had a bunch of agents then call me saying like, oh, well, you did, you made them do X. That's an extra blank on top of their rate. And they're right. It's, it, there's nothing you can really do about it. So again, keeping ahead of it with the conversation will help uh, save you a headache later on. Yeah. And I assume you communicate these details to each actor individually ahead yes. of schedule. Yep, absolutely. Great. Yep. And do you send any kind of contracts in advance? Do you send like deal memos, release forms or anything? Or do you just do that on the day? Or does the agent just handle that afterwards with you? You know, um, a lot of times on, on bigger commercials, um, I, they definitely, agents or a really good agent will ask you for a contract um, or a talent release ahead of time because – when you started getting into usage, which is how an image or video is used, whether that's on broadcast or social media or, you know, different cut downs and variations of, of whatever the contract says, um, agents know that if based on your rate, you should be charging X. So I did have a problem once where I didn't send the, con the, the release ahead of time and we were on set shooting with the talent and the agent, you know, calls me and is like, we're not going to agree to this. So what do you do in that scenario? You've oh already been God. filming with this actor for three hours, you know? So then <laughs> I have to renegotiate a talent release, but the, the manager knows that my hands are tied and that I'm screwed. So again, it's, it's being very forward up front with the talent releases. Sometimes for music videos, if it's a little bit more simple or basic, or there's not a lot of variables in mind, it, it, it's not always presented up front, but for the larger jobs that have, you know, strong talent guidelines and, and situational things that need to be reviewed. I definitely recommend sending it ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. So Ryan, can you talk about um, the importance of, and maybe share some um, examples of some things that might assist you in just the overall like 
paper trail and organization, um, not just dealing with situations like that, but especially when you're, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, a music video that might involve multiple different crew, um, uh, art department, props, uh, maybe animals, like you've got all these different emails and stuff you're dealing with. Is there anything you use to kind of stay better organized? Anything you'd recommend for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, similar to what I kind of said earlier about uh, building a contact base. I mean, I I always joke and say if he took away Dropbox and Google Drive from me and told me to produce something, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Um, I mean, I, and I would be able to maybe figure it out. But it's, you know, I, I have a system that's, that's organized in a way that, like I said, keeps all of those that information all in one place. Um, if you find that you're you have attachments and emails, you have phone numbers saved in different contacts and on notepads and in a different text chain. It becomes really, really tricky to be efficient. Um, I always tell people like, if you only have to do something once, it will like, you'll be way ahead of everyone else in the sense that if someone gave you information one time in a text or an email, put that information somewhere all in one place, you have it and can quickly and can quickly look at it. Um, if it takes you, you know, 30 through two minutes, 30 seconds to two minutes to recall like someone's phone number that you've been given twice, you know, that definitely adds up. Yeah. Uh, so just by staying organized and keeping all your important information all in one place will help you be more efficient. And again, will allow you to think more on the fly and, and uh, just be more prepared for anything that comes your way. I mean, you know, I have a joke where, like I mentioned earlier, I, I can find any information from any single job within 30 seconds when I'm on my computer. Um, and it, when I hire production staffs and people who, who work underneath me, the ability to recall information quickly is so essential. And I just have seen people kind of struggle with it. And it, it all comes down to just how they're organizing their information. It's, it's not hard to do. It's just trying to keep all those big pieces in one place. So uh, over the past one to, you know, three years, how has be just overall being a producer, but, you know, building a team, working on a production set, like, how has that evolved over for you in the, in the past three years? Like how, how have you changed? How have your methodologies or practices changed? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that's definitely important for me is the power of delegating. Um, I have two employees that help me run and manage the entire company from accounting to post-production uh, to overseeing the creative. But I mean, I, I think as, as a broader sense is I used to be the producer that was hired from production companies. So I would be focused on one job at a time each company, everything from from top to bottom in the budget, um, you know, making hiring on the crew, negotiating vendors and locations and casting and all that stuff from start to finish. Now, as an executive producer, I am the one that's hiring a producer for individual projects. So as an EP, I might be managing anywhere from, you know, three to seven projects at one time that can all be in various different stages of production. Now, as an EP, you could say that I do less work in that regard on each project. And that's true to a degree. Yes, I'm not the one making the phone calls and, and negotiating rates with talent um, because I'm more on a, on a higher end level overseeing a large quantity of projects. And I will say if, if I were personally producing you know, seven projects at once, it would be horrendous i i think that it would be it'd be a nightmare thing would fall through the cracks it's just too much work you know it's 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 too much for one person to do effectively and i always tell some producers they're like i'm on eight projects right now and it's like okay that's 
congrats, but I also That's have been good. there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how, how that's yeah. going to work out for you. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. we we say that you're essentially only as good as your last project. And, and I know that's an exaggeration, but that's how people evaluate you is like you, the quality of your last project, the the way you worked on your last project. That's how people remember you. And if uh, and if that one project you were just in way over your head, you were not organized, you didn't have your shit together. Like it's going to be hard moving on to the next project with that crew and uh, and having them do some, you know, giving you favors and stuff like that. So you know, every project needs to be your best project. And and to Ryan's point, you need to be organized. You need to be prepared. You need to know how to delegate so you can do that and to scale your productions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When you're working with locations, uh, how do you go about booking locations? You know, like each location is different. Uh, you know, how do you communicate with that and, and kind of walk us through the process with booking locations? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I will start by saying, there are some fantastic resources to use for locations. Um, just like the easiest one, I think, is a house. Uh, there's tons of location companies online that you can research to find these types of properties. There's websites like Gigster, Peerspace, Rapple, where you literally, it's like an Airbnb for film shoots. You literally just put how many crew, your dates, and the type of location and have a laundry list of places. Um, so the first thing is, you know, I, I, I think it's just kind of researching a little bit what's out there. Uh, and then from that point, we set up ones that we make sure they look, they work for our budget or make sure they work for our logistics uh, and for our creative. And then we go scout them. Obviously, sometimes you don't get all that information before a scout, but it's wise to ask some of these questions before you go, because last thing you want, we've done this before too, where we go scout a location and then after we scout, we're like, oh yeah, this location's 30 grand. And we're like, okay, I wish you would have known that beforehand. Or oh yeah, this location's booked up for three weeks during your shoot. And it's like, okay, why did we scout this? So it's like asking those questions ahead of time, knowing what you're walking into and using those resources um, is kind of the step-by-step process. And then from there, um, you move on, you know, you pay for it, you lock it in, you move into permitting. Um, And one thing that's very important to note with permitting is you need to make sure where your location is located. Just because it's in quote unquote, Los Angeles doesn't mean it's a film LA permit that can be turned around in three days. Sometimes you're in neighborhoods. Sometimes you have HOA. Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, like Burbank requires police officers. So like there's little things in each city that all you have to do is when you have the shooting address, you can call film LA, talk to them on the phone, no matter what, and just say, Hey, I want, I want to give you an address. Can you tell me what jurisdiction this is in? They'll tell you and they'll tell you the person to call. So that kind of, like I've been there before where I, I was shooting in, in, Bever- in like up in the hills above Beverly Hills and our permit budget was $1,500 and we didn't realize until the day before a shoot that we were in a fire hazard zone. We were in a, a personnel like control zone with parking and stuff and our permit came back and it was like four grand when we thought it was going to be closer to 1500 So again, mm-hmm. could have been pre- prevented if we asked those questions up front and knew where our, our house was located. Yeah, and I think for people outside of LA, you can call your film commissioner and you could call location scouts in your city and an area to kind of figure out what your permitting restrictions are and what you can and cannot do. I think I think you need to know the rules so you can decide when to break them, but if you don't know the rules and you get surprised, that's when you get into really big exactly. trouble. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ryan, when you're scouting, you know, there's I think there's a, a special skill that a producer has of like just figuring out if this location is actually like 
if you're actually able to shoot there with a production, you know, especially a production of your size where it's like 30, 40, 50 crew members, like what do you look for in locations that like, all right, this is production friendly. We can do this on a production viewpoint. Like mm-hmm. what do you look for? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a great question, JJ. I mean, that so many times I've, I've looked for locations with directors and you might find a location that creatively fits fits the video and is your dream location and looks amazing, but logistically is a disaster. And what actually will happen is you'll spend more time of your day trying to make up for the, you know, the mess that it turns into than it being better for the video, you know, and, and I will say some really good directors I work with recognize that, um, you know, one thing that's very simple is, is, parking you know where is your crew parked um are you parking on property do you have to park 15 minutes away and get shuttled there um another thing and and besides just crew parking is your production trucking and and other things that you're able to bring in as a resource you know do you have to bring in your own bathrooms are these trucks able to pull up and unload in a location you know i've i've toured these houses before like perfect example we were doing a video for the weekend and one of these one of these locations was amazing. It was the best for the creative, but the rule was that you could only have one production truck parked up at this location at any given time, and it was six floors with one elevator. So how are you going to unload with a hundred person crew your camera and then your electric and then your grip and then your art and your production supplies and doing like a dosi do of trucks loading out one by oh one is gosh. a disaster. Yeah. So just being able to understand logistically what makes the most sense and will ultimately give you the most amount of time on the day. That's everything from company moves to be factored in. Like I said, logistics, uh, if the location's really, really big, it's going to take longer to load in and out of. That's going to eat at the beginning of your day, at the end of your day. You know, So it's just kind of taking more into consideration um, for logistical purposes beyond just creative. Cause if you only focus on the creative, uh, you will probably run into other problems when you're shooting. <laughs> yeah. When you're doing your scouts and your tech scouts, like how is your communication style with the location representative? Like how in depth do you go into your production and to tell them what you guys are going to be shooting before you shoot there? Yeah. So that's a great question. And, and similar to what I said about, you know, talent and, and even crew. And this is something that I've learned um, as I've, you know, uh, done a lot of these, but I used to kind of think in the sense of, oh, maybe it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Like maybe we just float it to this location later. Um, But the issue with doing that is if you know you have a scene that is very detrimental to the creative and it needs to happen, you need need this location to know that you're doing it. Um, if you don't communicate that ahead of time, you get there on the shoot day and you're like, wait, what do you mean we can't light a bonfire on the backyard lawn? It's like they they could, right. if, if it's a major part of your video and you don't let them know, again, no one likes surprises. So you got to ask those things up front. And like I just did a video last week where one of the locations wouldn't allow us to do donuts in the car. And you know the director had said, well, maybe we just ask them later or don't tell them. And I said, well, what if we go, this is your master performance for your artist. What if I tell you on the shoot day you can't do any donuts and you can't get your master performance shot? Would you rather do that? He's like, no. I was like, okay, well, there you go. We're going to ask them. So yeah. I'm a big advocate of always asking up front. Um, your locations are your best friends here. Uh, and, you know, I've never had a, you know, a shoot shut down from a location, but 
I've definitely had it before where the location managers were not happy. Uh, and if they're not happy, they have the power to do whatever they want. Uh, so you want to make sure that you have as many cards in your hand as you can to to prevent anything negative from happening with these shoes. <laughs> yeah, they're an asset to you as well. You know, exactly. like if you have a successful experience with a location, you want that in your back pocket so you can mm -hmm. use that again in the future. So you don't want to burn these locations. No, absolutely not. And I know people that have done that. Now they're not allowed back in certain cities and jurisdictions. It's the last thing you want. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so rough. Um, you know, what? what's like one of the craziest things you've ever had to find and book for a production? And could you like walk us through that that process? Yeah, um, I, it's so funny. I, I was thinking about this. I still think the hardest location I've ever had to find um, it comes down to two different ones. I'll talk about two different projects really quick. One of them, and this was before weed was legal. Um, I had to find a live grow house in Los Angeles to film a video for Schoolboy Q called Dope Dealer. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, the lo first of all, getting in touch with these people. And then some of these <laughs> locations told me that, oh, yeah, like we'll meet you here take your phones, put like a ski mask on, drive you in circles so you can't see where we're going, and then we'll take you <laughs> to our warehouse. And I was, it just felt very like undercover, like vice, like are we gonna get, you know, I don't know, her doing something yeah. like this. And, and the other things too, let's call it as it is, these, these weed house, grow houses, they make thousands and thousands of dollars. Like what, what is an extra two grand to them for them to like blow up their cover in the spot? Like it's not worth it. So, to find that was a huge variable. We ended up, I ended up finding, um, we went to Humboldt up in, up in uh, Northern oh, California yeah. and filmed this location I think was free. Uh, and if you go watch the video, like it looks pretty uh, incredible, but that's because it's an actual grow house, like out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and also that whole experience was uh, very interesting. This guy came out with a gun and was like aiming it at uh, chickens and being very uh, chaotic. It was very much like where the hell are we? <laughs> and then the other, the other one was for this video for this artist named Oliver Tree. Um, we had to find not only did I have to the hardest thing to book was a monster truck that could go off of a jump and also had a custom paint job. Uh, and it was only going to cost us a small amount of money. And where is a location where we could build a jump, launch a monster truck off of it, and film all these <laughs> other scenes? Uh, and the answer was I found a monster truck company from Northern California, we drove all the way down and we filmed out in Paris, California, which is like in between Los Angeles and Palm Springs in the middle of nowhere uh, at a giant racetrack uh, that was only 2000 a day. I mean, I'll say that while we're on the subject of locations, it's insane what you can get when you travel outside of LA. Uh, I'll say that. Yeah. Um, you can get so much pretty, cheaper. Yeah. Some crazy locations some crazy deals for not a lot of money. Um, like the, a speedway that I know of here in LA is 10k a day minimum, and like I said, that one out there was 2,000 for three days, and it also hmm. included parking. And, and they built us a monster truck jump, like with their tractors. So it's like, you if you travel a little bit outside, sometimes you can get some pretty good deals. <laughs> yeah, have you ever had a book like a wild animal, like uh, like a leopard or anything? <laughs> yeah, I've had to do. Let's see, we've done snakes. Let's see. What else? Oh, I've done a horse as a bunch. Um, I did a reindeer once and we spray painted his antlers with this like reflective uh, antler, like, 
I hate to call it like spray paint. It's not actually harmful for the animals, but they use it to spray on animals up in like Canada and stuff so they don't get hit by cars. So when you drive them, like their antlers are reflective. That's smart. Yeah. So we did that and we implemented VFX so their horns are actually glowing. So that was, we did glowing reindeer horns. Yeah. Snakes, horses. I've done dogs, uh, birds, insects. We did an, we had this insect lady come who was like the bug girl, brought like, you know, (laughs) tons of different types of insects to play with. Um, I've, I have been out like bears and, and lions and cheetahs and things like that, but those have never actually gone through, sadly. Um, I'll say this about animals, though. Animals are a lot more expensive than you think typically. You know, even a dog sitting there pulling on a leash or following you and barking or eating something can take several prep days with trainers to get them to do it properly. So oh, uh, animals I find are always more expensive than you need. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've personally booked two Panthers before. Uh, and I think, I think it was $2,000 a day for the Panther. Uh, and it was really difficult, but like when you're booking these types of like specialty things, like what mm-hmm. goes with that? Like how can you prepare to, you know, book these specialty things like, you know, a reindeer with antlers that you got to <laughs> spray paint? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, I think again, it kind of goes back uh, to uh, the best way to be prepared is to really communicate exactly what you're doing with these animals. As, as I mentioned a second ago, like, I mean, I've, I've tried to quote out dogs pulling someone on a leash, but they'll ask you the questions of how long is the scene? Like how many dogs, how many takes, like, you know, all these little things that go into it because this involves all the prep work and you want to obviously make sure that your animals are doing what they need. Uh, The other thing that's pretty interesting is I really recommend you going to multiple parties uh, and companies when quoting this out. Uh, One time I had to have a horse that needed to have a custom bull cut. Um, and that every, I probably contacted 15 trainers. Every one of them told me it was going to be like $8,000 plus like a regrow fee of the hair and like, uh, the inability to be down, like down days where the horse couldn't be used. And, you know, someone else I found found a solution. They said, no, I'm just gonna, you know, sew in some fake hair and cut it myself and the horse can just work on a regular day rate. And there you go. Um, you know, similar, I, I ran into another, on another job, we had to have a bunch of doves get released out of a crate. Uh, all these people were telling me, oh, this is 7,000. Oh, this is 8,000. 8, oh, this is 10. And I were able to find someone that said, no, like I do this for a living. We can do it cheaper if we do it like X. So by going to multiple sources, you will sometimes run into someone that has a creative workaround on how to simplify what you're doing and help your numbers, which I've always found is very beneficial. Uh, so going the extra mile makes a difference. Is that what you're telling us? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So building off of that, uh, Ryan, can you tell us maybe like one thing you wish you knew before you got started in this whole crazy career of yours? Yeah, something that I wish that I I I knew come before coming into filmmaking. I mean, it kind of goes on the level of there's obviously lots of things, but one thing that's kind of comes out of my head is is permitting in the sense that I didn't know that you could apply for what's called a writer. Um, so there's a few things that I'll say. Number one is I always permit for a way larger window than I need as long as it doesn't incur additional costs. Um, that allows you if your client is showing up late or if you want flexibility. You already have a larger window permitted and you can just move your call time accordingly. Um, I had a job once where the client wanted to push call time eight hours uh, and we couldn't do it. And they got really frustrated with us because they said that we should have permitted a larger window, which we should have. That's the first thing. Number two, a writer, 
you, by communicating with Film LA, you can apply for what's called a rider, which is a small, you pay a small fee and it's an amendment to your permit. So sometimes if you know that you're going to be going late or things are going to change, you can call Film LA even after hours and they can put a rider on your permit, which will sometimes grant you further shoot windows, further times for your police officers or whoever you might have on set. So knowing that that's something in your back pocket um, is very beneficial. Now, here's another thing that's uh, a little bit of a stretch of the truth, but I actually found this out on accident. Um, And Film LA has something called an all-jurisdiction grid permit. So typically, if you apply for a grid permit, um, that is a permit that allows you to shoot um, in a particular area in Los Angeles. You know, there's a grid downtown. There's a grid, uh, you know, in Hollywood. And there's a couple different jurisdictions all over LA. Now, typically, this is only allowed for reality television. Um, but you can maybe stretch it and say that's what you're doing, as I maybe have before. Uh, and <laughs> that is they allow you to permit two home base locations, quote unquote, where your talent is staying. So that can be a house, that can be a whatever. And then an all jurisdiction grid means they automatically get you a grid to film in any Los Angeles uh, uh, jurisdiction that is technically not in a neighborhood or a park. Um, I've kind of personally just used it as like a, a permit that says all jurisdiction grid and you show it to a cop or a person, they're like, what the heck is this? Uh, it looks like you're fine. Sure. But for someone who's, you know, a young videographer trying to have flexibility on where they're shooting, um, it is a very nice and inexpensive permit. I think at the time it was only like 750 bucks because they don't have to do any fire spot checks or anything like that. Um, so it's an easy, cheap permit to get that gives you a lot of flexibility to kind of film wherever you want and at the very least get a piece of paper to show someone uh, and they'll most likely leave you alone. I've never been, knock on wood, uh, asked, to, asked to stop filming on an all-jurisdiction grid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think for our listeners, the more, moral of the story here is to learn the rules and to learn yeah. <laughs> about the area that you're filming in and to, to make sure that you know what you can and cannot do. And as you grow and get into bigger productions, you're going to need to know more and more of this. And the last thing that you want to do is plan a production get there and then get shut down for whatever reason, because it just looks terrible on you uh, Mm -hmm. and your client will probably never hire you again. And so I think a lot of what Ryan is saying, it's super high level. It's, you know, for bigger productions, but it goes to show how important those details are because now that Ryan knows this system, he knows how to get around the system and that's how he makes uh, his productions really flexible and, 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 uh, and sets himself up for success. So you need to have knowledge here. You can't just say, Oh, you know, I film here all the time. I'm just going to go back here with my first $10,000 client. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're a bigger production and you call more attention and you get shut down. So you just need to know the laws, the regulations, because again, this is your company. This is your livelihood. Like you can't risk anything that's going to get in the way of that or that's you're going to get any fines or lose clients. You need to do the preparation ahead of time to make sure that these big videos that you start working on, you know, are a success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Why, why do you think most producers fail, Ryan? Like producers starting out, why do you think they fail? I, it's hard I, to say know, because I, there's a million yeah, reasons. It's, it's but. hard to say. I mean, I, again, I, you know, I, I go back on the organization and, and a lot of that you know, comes with experience. But as a producer, you very often have to make very quick decisions um, as a professional problem solver. And again, I think that goes down to being organized. You can... You can make those decisions more uh, efficiently and also more intellectually by having all of the resources at your fingertips and knowing what direction you're going. 
So again, that does come with experience to know that, oh, if I have X or Y or Z as a variable, then I can do this. Um, but ultimately organization, because it will allow you to lead more effectively and like and make more important decisions. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I've worked with producers that it takes them, you know, five, five to eight minutes to find something or answer something that I that, you know, I or someone that works for me can find in 30 seconds and it, it adds up. Um so being organized, I think, is one of the most effective tools. And then, again, touching on what we touched on earlier is just being a good leader and understanding the people and needs of the people that you're working with. And remember that your crew members are your support system and your team and to treat them as such. Don't uh, treat people well. Feed them well. Um, be communicative with your vision and with their and also what the, the, the director's vision is, too, to be more effective in your approach. And just like I said, communicating and and um, just making people feel like you have their back will lead to better results on your set and people will want to work harder and work with you again. Um, if you are a mean person or you don't give any insight on what you're trying to accomplish together, your whole team will feel lost and things will fall apart. Yeah, definitely, man. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Ryan, as we're working to kind of wrap up this episode here, I'm curious, What's the future of production look like, um, you know, from your perspective with, you know, everything becoming more consumer friendly, more readily available, friendly, uh, family friendly prices, if you will. Um, people are getting a lot more access to things. Crew sizes uh, seem to be getting a bit smaller. What, what is what are your thoughts about the, the future of production? Yeah, so, I mean. I think that in a position where a lot of these listeners are at is a very good place to be. I mean, clients, um, especially for large brands and, and the commercial space are realizing that they don't need to spend, you know, millions of dollars to get the same amount of eyes on, on their product. So we've been watching this happen for a while where the budgets of commercials has, has definitely shrunk even since when I started this industry and even before I was here, it was already shrinking. Um, so being able to identify, you know, for crews to be able to identify the essential tools to create something that looks good, I think is really important. Um, you're also watching um, a lot of ad agencies uh, become production companies and run their own jobs in house and vice versa. You're seeing production companies, you know, bring on creative staff, uh, creative directors and writers uh, to then run creative in house. So you're watching these two different types of companies kind of become one. Um, and with that, the market is getting a little bit shaken up. You know, some directors are, are more freelance than they were a couple of years ago with some of these big companies. Um, and it's just an interesting landscape, especially as you're moving through COVID, being that a lot of brands and clients are still afraid to spend money. So we're going to see it kind of level out. But I mean, I think the ability to create something powerful with not a lot of money and knowing the tools to, to make something look good um, is kind of going to give you a competitive edge moving forward in this industry. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. You know, I think uh, our listeners should uh, have gained a lot of knowledge from you coming on today, Ryan. So thank you for taking the time to uh, bless us today. Of course. Definitely, man. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And also just a big thank you to our listeners for staying with us for another week of Learn Videography. It's been an incredible journey with you all so far. For next week, we'll be talking about building a team, when you should do it, and the advantages and disadvantages associated with that. Otherwise, you can follow us on Instagram at Learn Videography and at Industry Jump. And you can follow our special guest, Ryan, at Ryan Huffman, along with Kyle at Cal Visuals and myself at JJ Angler. Otherwise, it was a hell of an episode, boys. Thank you for coming on again, Ryan. Really appreciate everything that you shared with our audience today. Of course. Thank you, guys.
Appreciate it, man. Later, y'all. Later. Yo!